Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. When two Division I athletes discuss the challenges and successes of navigating life after competing, you get conversations designed by athletes for athletes. I'm Don Sutton. And I'm Brooke Beerhouse, sharing with the athletic community stories and insights to better understand life when your sport ends. Hello and welcome to episode three of When Your Sport Ends, here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? On this week's episode, we're talking to Dr. Antonio Harrison, or as some of you might know him, Coach Doc, host of the Believe Podcast Athlete Behavior. Dr. Antonio Harrison was born and raised in Pasadena, California. He is a behavior scientist and much of his work focuses on health, sports, and fitness. He is a husband, a dad of three, and a former NCAA athlete football player at Grinnell College in Iowa. He is also a graduate school professor, podcast host, speaker, author, and all-around content creator. Enjoy this conversation with Dr. Antonio Harrison, where I hope that you find the content to be raw, real, and relevant. We would really love to hear, to just start out more about what you're job entails and sort of what your day-to-day is like if it's if it's the same if it's not the same every day you can give us a gist of what you do so we can better understand um you and your mission in life uh my day-to-day is pretty much whatever i design it to be Uh, i teach graduate school online and i'm actually just now going to be teaching back in person because I missed it over at Pepperdine University. I teach online for University of West Florida. And so those are typically night classes. Um, During the day, if it's during football season, I've got football practice where I coach. I'm a defensive coordinator uh, for a high school varsity team. And during football season, Monday through Thursday, we've got practice. Friday nights are games. Sunday, coaches meeting and film. And then I also teach a fitness class, a treadmill studio fitness class. It's three classes a week. It's only two nights a week. And I get to play DJ and put together a playlist. And I do a hip hop night on Tuesdays. And we match the beats per minute of the music to increase potential heart rate output, uh, beats per minute of heart rate for our clients. And I'm doing a lot of videos on demand, kind of like the whole Peloton thing you see. and, and so I got that going on. And then, you know, as a behavior scientist, I work a lot with whether it be clients or giving talks or lectures or invited speaking engagements. And a lot of that stuff is either in the realm of parenting, leadership or health, sports and fitness. Recently, I wrote this letter, open letter to our field, and it kind of put me on this diversity and inclusion track, which I don't know if I, I want to make that uh, my go to, but. It's getting me, you know, flown over all over the country this year to Boston, Texas, Washington, D.C. So, you know, I'll take it for now. I like it. I enjoy it. I love being on stage and talking in front of people. So why not? Truly a renaissance, man. I like it. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No. Um, I like how you incorporate, I guess, part of your career is working out. 
That's very awesome. And then you also have the aspect of the father's son ordeal where you just kind of put on a whole bunch of, what is it, outings along with parent teaching as well. You want to dive yeah, so, into a little bit of that? and Yeah, so the uh, the the father-son's thing, honestly, it was a, it's a big thing for me, me and my dad. Um, we went through a lot growing up. And uh, I mean, just to be honest and frank here, I lived in Los Angeles through the 80s, 90s and 2000s. And when the crack epidemic hit, like it hit my home, you know, my dad got hooked. And when we found out when I was 10, my dad just decided to stop going out on three day weekend vendors and he just did it at home. Um, So we had a lot of ups and downs, but he's my best friend. And uh, even though when he wasn't using, he was the greatest dad in the world. And it was because he was just simply present. He was there. And there's so many things that just having a dad around can do for men, women, anybody, but I have three boys. So it's hard for me to speak about, I can speak about parenting in general with my background and science of human behavior, but I've got three boys. So it's different than raising a, a young woman. Um, sure. So I do a lot of videos for parents and tips on that and have done a course on masculinity for high school kids and work with a, a, just a lot of people in, in the neighborhoods and the communities on, how to be better dads. Cause quite frankly, it's one of the toughest things. Cause you know, men, we, we don't want to ask for directions, let alone ask anybody how to help raise our children. Um, so, uh, and then with the fitness part, it was something that I had to do in all honesty. My doctor told me if with my back and my knee after my injury, if I didn't stay healthy and fit, it was going to be a rough road ahead for me. So I just made sure to stay in that lane and continue to do that. And that's changed. I've dropped all the weightlifting and football stuff. And now I swim, you know, two to three miles a week, do Tai Chi. And then I just uh, every morning at 630 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for folks who don't can't afford a gym membership, can't afford a trainer, don't want to go to the gym, feel like they need motivation or can't put together workouts. Just go to my YouTube channel live, completely free. I don't bombard you with sponsorships and just follow a 30-minute at-home workout with zero weights involved and get fit. Like, if you really want to do it, here's there's no excuses anymore. Just press play. Nice. Yeah, I really like that. I feel like that transition out of having a structure and playing, I mean, you were part of a team, so you had those training sessions every single day and working out with someone. Was that new or hard at all to go through working out by yourself right after the injury and and getting back into working out again? You know, I've played organized sports since I was four and I've always, it started out as a swimmer actually, but for the most part, it's always been basketball. It's always been basketball and football. um, And that's a team sport, but honestly my training ground for being able to keep up my own self-discipline and work out on my own was the fact that I had to go through being casted hip to toe for a year and a half and spending like another half of a year, a year on rehab for my knee. And I mean, sitting on a stationary bike every day for 45 minutes when no one else is around, like you, if you're going to be by yourself, you better be in good company. Right. So, um, right. <laughs> so that's what you I better love like, yourself first. Doing. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, that was my training ground, but it was tough. It was not something I was used to. I know this is uncomfortable to say, but do you think that helped you moving out of football, which is an extremely physical sport, into more of 
managing the body and continuing to stay fit? Or did you have kind of that brief period where you didn't do much once the sport ended? Mm -hmm. Um, I stayed doing stuff because I didn't know how to stop. Um, But I will say I had to learn that, you know, I didn't need to hang clean 275 pounds in a workout or make sure I'm benching 315. Like it's just not necessary anymore. And I found even in doing my body weight workouts and all the stuff with swimming that I'm doing, I can still push that weight. Like the strength is still there. I just don't put the wear and tear on my body anymore. And to go back to what Brooke was saying with respect to the self-care, I got to start as a freshman in college football and I was a three, a four-year starter two years off conference, like freshman athlete of the year, defensive rookie MVP. So I was Superman going into my senior year. You couldn't tell me anything. And I was kind of a dick. Like I was an asshole. (laughs) And that experience was so humbling that it forced me to kind of like take a step back and just recognize who's helping me, what things are really about and how to be kind to other people instead of just feeling like I could walk in a room and demand whatever I wanted. Um, so that was, those were the two things that were big shifts for me. What exactly did happen with your, how did you get injured? I don't think I know that backstory. So I was, uh, going into my senior year, I didn't have enough money to come home from Iowa. So I got a grant to write a paper about a nonprofit in the city. Hmm. And, um, All I did was wake up every day. I worked out, went to the nonprofit, came home and worked out again. And I was the biggest, fastest, strongest I had ever been in my life. And when I got to training camp and the weight I was pushing for max rep days, the coaches were like, you're not going to play safety anymore. You're going to play linebacker and we're just going to send you after the quarterback. And I was super pumped. Uh, But I had been safety for three years as a starter. So our first game, the opposing coach recognized that I wasn't there anymore and that there was a freshman back there. And they started to attack this kid, just eat him alive. And so at halftime, the coach made an adjustment and said, Antonio, go back to being safety. And I said, "Okay, cool. And, you know, um, I was playing safety first series of the third quarter. And I I read a route that was going deep and I cut underneath it. And I was running laterally to my right and I jumped up and I tipped the ball. But the ball went behind my head. And instead of going with gravity and turning over my right shoulder to see if the receiver is going to catch it. I turned back against gravity over my left shoulder while I was floating right. And when I landed, I just simply slipped and the inside of my ankle touched my groin. Oh Um, my gosh. And I, I didn't tear. I obliterated my ACL, LCL, PCL, IT band, hamstring, meniscus, complete skin, uh, complete knee and shin dislocation. So skin and or skin and MCL were the only two things holding my leg together. Oh so man. They came on the field, popped my shin and knee back into place at the same time and then took me to the doctor. And at that time it had swelled up bigger than a grapefruit. And the doctor was like, we can't even x-ray this. So I was like, you know, give me some crutches and a brace. I got to get back to the game. Um, so I crutched, you know, small town for stoplight. So I crutched the two blocks back to campus and got wow. to see our team when get the, got to see our team get the winning touchdown on the last drive. And so uh, that was the last time I ever played football. That's a pretty heavy story. I like how you, you made it a point to get back to the team. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I feel personally like really close with my 
teammates that I swam with, and we try to make a point to get there. You want to touch a little bit on that aspect as far as the team and how you've maintained um, over the years? In all honesty, and, and mm -hmm. I've got some brothers on the team that uh, our friendship is beyond team. That's just kind of where we met. And those are the folks that I still stay in contact with. And it's not to knock my team. Um, it's just, it, it's just the, the confession of a broken heart, I guess you could say. And what I mean is my surgery story is kind of horrendous. Um, I went into surgery and because things didn't tear, they couldn't mend them. They had to use two and a half Achilles tendons from cadavers and five screws and plugs to replace my ligaments. So oh, I had, I had two and a half surgeries in one night on my first surgery. And just on the cutting room table alone, I was there for 12 and a half hours. And about 10 hours in, I started to come to out of anesthesia with my leg wide open. And so oh man, they got super scared and they flooded me with anesthesia and strapped me down crucifix style. And what it did was basically put me in a medically induced coma for three days. And so I went in at 199 pounds, like no neck, just solid muscle. And I woke up three days later at 145, 148. Whoa. Um, and all the time I was in the hospital recovering, one teammate, not one coach, no one else, just one teammate, my defensive end, Waylon Woods out in San Antonio, Texas. He's the only person that came to visit me 45 minutes away. And I get it. They were playing, you know, they're in season. Um, but that's something that hurt my heart that I still hold on to. The fact that he's the only person who showed up out of all the years and everything I did for that program, even though maybe I didn't live up to my full potential because I was partying and chasing girls and things like that. But uh, the fact that only one person showed up, I just felt like a commodity that was used up. And I was, a, you know, an asset that was no longer available. That in itself, I mean, any injury is hard to come out of mentally, but this, I mean, this really is a testament to how strong you are. And I can imagine a lot of people that would have spiraled after this. I mean, learning from everything that you had to overcome, was that a main part of why you wanted to get into being a behavior scientist? I mean, were you curious, like how you were able to get out of this? Well, well, it's it's kind of funny. It goes back to my dad. Um, the only reason I didn't spiral out of control is because of the narcotics they gave me were just way too strong and I was way mm. too small. I couldn't handle them. I was, you know, 145 soaking wet and just like a shell of myself. I hadn't been 145 since middle school. So like I just couldn't handle the painkillers they gave me. So I, I didn't go that route. So I kind of like had to be on point. And to go back to my dad, what I mean is I... I'm 10 years old and all throughout from 10 to 18 to 17 before, when I graduated high school, I see my dad use in the house. And when, if you've ever seen anyone under the influence of crack cocaine, like they get super paranoid. So he would be, he would be in the living room behind curtains, holding butcher knives, peering out the window. And like my sister and I would have to stomp around the house to ensure that he knew it was us. So we didn't startle him. So when you go through that shit at a young age, like, there's nothing else in the world that's really going to bother you. Like, what is that? What does my knee have to, I mean, how does my knee compare to that? Like it just doesn't. Right. Um, I saw shit at a young age that no kid should ever see um, and put in situations. So it's like, it, it hardened my resolve to be able to get through stuff. 
as much as I would never, ever want my kids to experience or any kids for that matter to experience anything like that. But um, that's that's really what got me through it and what made me say, I want to study psychology because I want to know why the hell people do what they do. I want to know why my dad can't pull away from this thing. Why do people get involved in this? Um, but then, you know, your interests of sports and health and fitness, that's what I love. That's my world. Well, that starts to creep into my education and I didn't want to be an addiction counselor. So uh, I just loved people. I loved watching people. Did you see football as your escape in those times? I mean, I, I did. I did see it as my escape in a sense that um, the thing I was, I guess, known for in sports or football uh, in college, my nickname was angry from the football team because like I was a smaller guy, but I would throw my body around with reckless abandon. And, uh, I used to just hit really hard. I just had a natural gift for that. And I wasn't, I wasn't consciously thinking about, I'm taking out all of my feelings here, but it was, you aren't as tough as I am. There's no way. And I'm going to make you feel it because you've dared to step on a field with me. Um, and so that's that's how I got, uh, I guess, some of that angst out, because otherwise I'd have been a hellraiser for any high school. Yeah, <laughs> have you noticed or is this a component to your um, research at all, how athletes handle anger or their emotions, like how they process it? That's an interesting thing. I, I think it really just boils down to people's history and the sports they play like a swimmer is not going to have the same. Uh, approach to physicality as say a football player, but a water polo player may be closer to a football player than an actual swimmer. Right. Um, so it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing. I, most of my work really was more focused on self-discipline because, because I had to, I had to get myself up and get myself to practice. I had to put in the work. There was nobody there who was going to drive me or take me or do this. Like my mom was working multiple jobs because my dad was doing what he was doing. So, you know, uh, my parents did a great job in terms, of especially my mom, of getting me where I had to go. But I was carpooling everywhere I went. I had to be up to get myself to school to, you know, go to practice early or find a way home after the game. Um, that was all on me. So self-discipline has been like my big, huge thing uh, that I work on myself every single day and it's a never ending journey and that I try to help anyone who wants help. I don't force it on anyone. I like that too, because it sounds like even from an early age, um, I can relate to the sense that you need, I had to have a schedule and I knew times that, you know, I had practice or, um, I had to make sure I got home from after school activities, things like that. And so I just had a natural, uh, clock in my head and I still feel like that today and all through training in high school and university. And then afterwards I kept a schedule because I'm so used to it. Did you find yourself always staying to a schedule because of the decades of um, practices and having to attune to someone else's uh, mandated schedule for you? Exactly. I had to. Um, I, I know myself very well. And when I don't have shit to do, it can get real crazy. Um, <laughs> I just like to have fun and, and fun can come in all kind of forms and shapes. And I'm always open and up to do things and try new things. And so if I don't have things locked in, I mean, like if you were to look at my desk at home, there's a spreadsheet of 
things, the tasks that have to be completed Monday through Sunday, and then my schedule of what I do throughout those weeks that are locked in that are just my time. Like I'm up at 4.15 a.m. and from 4.15 to 7 is me time of exercise, meditation, uh, journaling, learning. Um, then I do the videos, uh, on for YouTube for the home exercises. Then I make my kids lunch and I, me and my wife, my wife and I coffee and then I sit and chill and then the kids get up. And then once they're off to school, um, I work on the most important stuff that I'm doing from eight 30 to about 11. And then from there, I'll either go hit a swim or my Tai Chi class. And after that, maybe take a walk, eat some lunch and after when I pick my kids up and they're doing their homework is the time I jump in and I grade stuff or I check emails. I do that once a day. Uh, but I'm not a, like I don't look at my phone until at least 12 o'clock. I like that. I wish I was better at that. Yeah, That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, it ha- I had to because I found myself just being locked in looking at stuff that like it just wasn't necessary. Like I didn't mm-hmm. get anything out of it besides burn time. I want to go back because I'm curious about your time at Grinnell. A lot of people, and I don't know if this was your case or not, would have blinders on to thinking, you know, just going pro and not really having a plan after college. Did you have in your mind what you wanted to do after graduation or were you kind of just playing it day by day and had your sights on a pro career? What was that like for you? Well, honestly, you know, D3 athletes get the rap of it's just not as good as the D1 folks you see on TV. And I bought into that throughout my college career. Now, as a coach, I know, you know, no matter what level of college you play, there's a very small percentage of high school students who get to go on and play. So I understand it as an adult. But back then, I just thought like, oh, we're just some rinky dink squads out here. I'm getting to have fun and play football like. I don't ever think it's going to go anywhere beyond this. And, but going into my senior year, when I saw how fast and big and strong I had gotten, I thought maybe there is a chance. Mm. And I was like, this is going to be my breakout year. And they're going to let me play outside linebacker and blitz the quarterback. Like I'm going to wreck shop. Um, And then the, the, the nonprofit that I, the grant that I got to work at the nonprofit, the, state representative, he was the owner, uh, his only black state representative in the state of Iowa. He was like, go try pros, Europe, whatever it is you want to do. But when you're done, I got a job here for you making 70, 75,000 a year. And y'all, Brooke, you know, in Iowa, $75,000 a year for a 21 year old, like, man, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, uh, That's that was the plan. But when all that happened, um, I couldn't shower like I had to ask my outside linebacker roommate like to help me into the shower. Like, you know, I mean, to have another grown man that humbles you real quick. uh, Yeah, Yeah. that was tough. Um, And then I had to go home because I had physical therapy and I needed help with just like basic necessities in life. Um, So, you know, um, that, that was my plan. And what I've ended up, what, what I found myself doing was I had was, was fully healed and could run again and do play basketball and dance and do all that stuff. And, uh, I was full-time teacher for a second grade classroom. I was work, I was working three nights graveyard shift at 24 hour fitness. And I was a bouncer at a club on the weekends. You've always been a Renaissance man. This is, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't for the, 
And it wasn't for the money. I just did it because I didn't know what the, what the hell to do. Like my identity was gone. Like who the hell am I anymore? And then so I was like, you know what? I always like school. Let me just go back to school. And, you know, um, with growing up the way I did, I always had to be very observant of who was sketch. Where's the exits? Who can I ask for help? So I came to love people watching and I contacted one of my undergrad professors and was like, where do you, what do you think I should do for, for graduate school if I wanted to go? And he's like, you know, there's this thing called behavior analysis. You should go check it out. You always like behavior. And that was that. I really like that. That's yeah. a ra- It's just such a beautiful lined up way of using your skills that, I mean, it sounds like you found your purpose, which is really cool because even when we were reading up on you, I, I feel like you have so many strengths and like the research that you've done and then, but then also, you know, being a father and being able to connect with people on that level too, and being an athlete, what are you hoping for the future that it will look like for your career? What's your end ideal goal to be able to do? Well, you know, um, I, I have to say, and I just hearing you say you found your purpose. I struggled with that for a decade answering who am I, what's my purpose. And I honestly don't think I've found it yet. I just stopped looking for it. Um, and I was like, you know what, I'm gonna do the things I like to do. I know they say have one specific niche and target that thing and go after what you love and master it. But like, I like this different stuff and things will unfold as they will. And when opportunities come, if I'm interested, I'll take them and we'll see where they go. And maybe that's put me on a longer journey than most, um, because I'm not so hyper-focused, but like, um, so I guess in a roundabout way to answer your question, like I have dreams and visions and goals. But in all honesty, um, as long as I get to take my boys to school and never miss one of their events, uh, as long as I am happy and healthy and like we got a roof over our head and food in our bellies and I'm smiling and not worrying about what other people are thinking about me and and only controlling what I can, like it'll end up where it is, where where it'll end up. It doesn't bother me wherever it ends up. That's awesome. I think... uh... I feel like I'm in somewhat of a similar realm and I just really like diving into a bunch of different things and helping out where I can and teaching where I can, which seems to be right in your alley, but you seem to manage it with that rigid schedule. Um, How did you kind of just keep adding on, if you will? Did these things just continue to pop and you just stick with it throughout? Yeah. And that's, that's pretty much what happened. Like, um, I mean, I'll give you an example, like, uh, the, the day I grad, uh, the day I interviewed for grad school right before then I had an interview for radio and television broadcasting school. And I did the uh, radio side and they're like, we'd love to have you come to the campus and be a part of the program. And I was like, look, I got this grad school interview. If I get in, it's a five-year program for master's and PhD. I will be back in five years. Um, and so I graduated in December of 2013 and January, 2014, I was knocking on their door. Like I'm ready for this 36 week intensive program, man. Like, let's do this. And that led to a podcast I had with someone, one of my classmates there, we got up to like 30,000 listeners organically, but he got engaged and moved off to Oregon. So killed the dreams of that. Yes, Charles, I'm talking to you. Uh, (laughs) Charles. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> um, and so like, you know, things would just happen. Like I wrote this, I love to write and I would write blog articles and I wrote this article that was open letter to the field about feeling like no one looks like me, moves like me, talks like me. It, it's just, it, it feels isolating. And that led to being invited to Texas, Boston, DC, being on a podcast and like things just kind of happened. And I found the more I just focused on working on myself, uh, the more those things unfolded instead of trying to chase those things and worrying about the outcome of them. A big thing for me that I try to share with people when it comes to like diversity is diversity and culture transcends color, right? It's about the staff, the curriculum, the environment, the people, so the real diversity for kids and athletes growing up is getting away from this damn specialization and doing what we all did growing up, which is playing everything. Like just, we just played, we played different sports. We played different stuff. And um, I'm seeing kids who are five, six years old, go to travel tournaments all over the world. Coaches telling them you're going to, your kid's going to get exposure. Exposure to what? He's seven, right? Like, have them play different sports, see different, because that's where you're going to find different people. Uh, you know, there's different demographics who play basketball and football versus who play basketball and water polo or tennis and golf. Like, that's just the real of it. Um, so for my boys, I never push them into anything. You want to try that? Let's try it. They love football and basketball, but they watch the NHL all-star hockey game and like fell in love with hockey. And I don't know a damn thing about hockey. So I'm like, all right, you guys want to play hockey? Like, just make sure, <clears throat> just make sure that we're really about this because that's a big investment. So, um, but if you want to play it, let's play it. So I think that's where the real diversity comes in is trying these different things because diversity is sitting next to you, right? Like, just go say hello to a stranger and you'll meet diversity. And the importance of sports too. I feel like um, I learned so much from being an athlete and really mentally and emotionally how to deal with anything because I had those skills. What do you think is the most important skills that you're trying to um, teach your boys through sports? Whether it's uh, through the football players I coach or my own kids and I can't even take credit for this. Uh, the head coach that I work for now I used to be a head coach for six years. And I took two years off because my eldest at the time was five, asked me to stop coaching because I wasn't home enough. Um, but the rival high school, uh, they came calling and that's where my kids go to school. And I was like, y'all can come to practice and ride the bus for games. Like, is it cool if dad coaches again? They're like, yeah, go for it. Um, but I, I say all that to say it's it's his motto for the football team, but he stole it from Lou Holtz and he'll acknowledge that. And and that's uh, give 100%, which is a cliche thing, but most people simply don't do it. Like we, how often do you truly, honestly answer that you've given 100% of yourself in that moment? Uh, the second one is do what's right. I'm a firm believer. Like we all know what the right thing to do is. Like we know what the right, like we know that we shouldn't yell at this person or flick this person off because they cut in front of us or make a judgment about like, we know we shouldn't do that stuff. Um, but the reason people don't give a hundred percent and do what's right is because it's hard. If everybody did it right, like it, it wouldn't be a thing. It wouldn't be a cliche, but it's really hard to do. And the third one he says is love each other. And if those three things are checked off the box, whether it be personally, professionally, 
working with the kids who are and those kids in my football team or my own kids, if they get those three things and they show up and they say thank you and please and they give 100 percent, do what's right and love each other and those around them. Like what 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 can I complain about? (laughs) Am I supposed to get mad that we didn't win the championship? That's such an important lesson. I feel like that's a lot of times overlooked within sports. I mean, you get caught up with trying to win and sometimes to the detriment of teammates or just anybody else. That's very powerful. Because your identity sometimes is so connected to winning or so connected to being an athlete. I think that was a hard thing. I wish that I'd known earlier that my identity and self-worth wasn't tied to winning. Yeah. And I don't get me wrong. I love to win and I'm yeah. hyper competitive. <laughs> sure. Sure. My, as you my would middle, be. <laughs> right. My middle son is just like me. And like, I mean, just playing like connect four basketball shots with these little like ping pong balls. He's just like, come on, dad, like me and you best out of seven. Just, and it gets under my skin. Right. I'm like, I'm going. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but, but that is one thing that I tell my boys and I tell the football players too is, and I wish somebody would have told me with respect to identity is like, uh, I love that you want to, like my eldest, I love that you want to be the starting quarterback for Clemson and play in the NFL. I will never crush mm-hmm. your dreams. I will champion that. However, while I'm championing that, find two other things you might be interested in. Dabble in over here. Learn how to play this guitar. Start drawing over here. Like, what? Are, read this book. Like, what else do you like? Because even if you do make it pro, and you become a Hall of Famer, that has a shelf life, right? Like mm-hmm. when, when it's done, it's done. So then what? And you're going to be 27, maybe 35, you know, um, and n- now you've got, you know, 50 years of your life left and you don't know who you are outside of that. Like go find some other stuff you like to do, man. Uh, and it's okay. That, that can be your downtime when you're done running drills or working out or watching film, that can be your downtime, whatever the other thing is you like. So you've got other skills and other things that don't define you as a person that are outside the realms of athletics. From what we've seen, there's a lot of people that are are still in that transition. And I think sometimes I find myself um, trying to figure out how to live a life without competing all the time. And um I'm curious for college athletes, especially some that are in their senior year or ones that have just graduated or maybe their sport ends their sophomore year. It really you know, doesn't matter. But what I'm curious about is what are some ways that they can handle that transition, um, that initial transition out of being an athlete and competing at a high level? I think it's twofold and it's just based off my experience. And the first is like, I know I I sound like I've got shit all put together and it sounds nice and wrapped in a bow, but like I struggle with it. I still do. Mm -hmm. When I go play Sunday basketball with the dads who, you know, are the dads at the school my kids go to, like you would have thought it was, you know, the NBA championship. I'm trying to win. You know what I mean? And they're just out there trying to get exercise, right? Like, um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, like, but, but that's totally okay. Like, I'm comfortable mm-hmm. in that. Um, and the other thing is, if you are gonna wrap your identity in in what you've been doing for the last two decades of your life, which is playing sports, understand that your identity is actually not an athlete. 
your identity is that of one of a warrior. And uh, mm. you can be a warrior in anything. Um, you can take that same work ethic, discipline, drive, competitive fire. I mean, you guys got a podcast, right? You can be warriors in podcasts and be the best podcasters who have ever lived with the best production and get after it the same way you would if you had to, you know, play a championship game or or mm -hmm. run or, or you know, break your personal best, your PR. I mean, you're a warrior. Athlete is that's all an athlete is, is a subcategory of being a warrior. Um, so I keep it from that perspective. And I even do things like one of my personal things I do is I read up on warriors, samurai. Like I know almost everything there is to know about samurai. Right. I, I trans like I, I take little prose from different samurai books and write them into my own interpretation that are useful for me. Like that's what we are. Because when we stepped out on that field, that court, that track, like we were warriors, we were competing mm -hmm. against someone else going after it. Um, so if you don't don't shy away from that identity, just flip the perspective. It's not an athlete. It's a warrior. And you can be a warrior in anything. You can't be an athlete in anything. I love that. You mentioned you mentioned warriors, specifically the mm -hmm. samurai. Do you have a sensei? Uh, I have a Sifu. Um, <laughs> which is a, a, a teacher. Um, he is, so two things. One, I got this, there's this book called the Shaolin workout. And there's this guy who was during the Shaolin monks, uh, oh. when they weren't getting a lot of people who were dropping their kids off to be part of the Shaolin temple anymore. They had to start going out and traveling and showing the feats of strength to the world. That's where they would do these crazy, you know, physical things. And, would travel the world. And there was this guy who decided this is not what this is about. And he defected while in New York and he teaches the 28 sequence of the Shaolin workout. And, um, I got the book. It took me four months to learn each, the whole sequence together. Uh, and you know, by myself, just reading it and trying it and have my wife describe it while I try to figure it out physically. And now I do it every day. Um, cool. but that, path led me to honestly i go to the ymca three times a week and i'm the only person under the age of 65 in this class with this tai chi teacher who is amazing his energy and flow when he walks in the room is palpable and he's quiet and reserved and he's the strongest man uh character and actual strength and force wise in the room but you would never know it um and so I go to his class three times a week. I walk in. I don't say a single word. I follow along. I do everything he asks me to do. And when it's over, I bow and say thank you. And I leave. And I do whatever that man asked me to do within that hour class. And that, I guess, would be my Sifu or Sensei. That's great. Giving back. At least he is. I mean, it yeah. sounds like you give back as well. So many different ways. Mm -hmm. so, I'm trying, man. Very cool. Yeah. That's awesome. I honestly, we were just so excited about this uh, conversation and I feel like it's, I've gotten a lot of insight from it. And so I really hope that everyone that has a chance to listen does too, because um, I think it's just important to continue this dialogue of figuring out that it's okay to be unsure of, of yourself at times and, and to still be transitioning. There's no timeline that says you have to be perfect or know your purpose have or your the path. next goal exactly next. yeah so i really appreciate you taking the time with us definitely cool and i really appreciate you guys having me on and uh when i 
got the email from you and checked out your first uh, kind of like welcome introduction episode, I was like, this is not only dope, but it's needed. Um, you guys are doing something that I think is super important. There's so many people I know walking around who are a shell of themselves because they don't know who they are outside of sports and that thing's done now. And now they're looking up and they're, you know, 40, 45, 50, and they're still struggling with things because they haven't let that go. Well, and I would say not even let that go, just allow that to fold in as part of your history and not something that has to be you. No. Just make me one promise, Brooke, and uh, just make me one promise, both of y'all. If your kid wants to play football, let them try. Just let them try. Uh, Even if you're nervous because, um, one, you're nervous for their safety, but they maybe actually be the kid that uh, makes other parents nervous for their kid's safety. and two kids know, and two kids know right off top in football. Um, the moment they take a real hit or give a real hit, they'll say, "This is for me," or "Nope, I'm a tennis player or a math whiz." Like, I, "This is not for me," and they'll walk away. Um, but don't don't hold your kids back from doing what they want to do. And I promise, yeah, I like that. I like that. All right, cool. <laughs> Please, if you like what we're doing, and you have a story to tell. We're listening. If you or a former athlete you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, you can reach us on Instagram or on the Believe Podcast website. And for all my visual learners, you can follow along on YouTube to watch the podcast as well. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.